Hi, my name is Ray Diedrichson, and welcome to my assignment for my speech and debate class. The first topic that I wanted to tackle was Reaganomics. You might be asking what Reaganomics is. Basically, it's the it's the economy or the ec economic status that Reagan placed when he was in office. For those of you who don't know, Reagan was our 40th president, and he served two terms. His belief status was widespread tax cuts, increased military spending, and deregulation of domesticated markets, all of which, except for military spending, he failed in and ruined our economy that we're still seeing today. Even though Reagan promised widespread tax cuts, he raised taxes 11 times, one of those being the biggest tax raises to date, being 28%. During Reagan's campaigns, he also began to present the idea of fair tax rates, meaning that the higher class, the middle class, and the lower class would all have tax rates that complemented where they were financially, and it would be fair for everyone in the U.S., but it didn't work out so well because marginal marginal tax rates plummeted and it became and the inequality inequality of these tax segments skyrocketed meaning that the first class is paying low taxes the middle class is paying the majority of the taxes as they don't need to going along with the idea of inequality that reaganomics shows Reagan, in his first year, cut domestic programs by $39 million just to give it to defense spending. In doing so, he also raised taxes to make up for what this defense spending was doing to their economy. Even though our defense spending was already enough, we were already capped at $20 million just in one year. So now you might be wondering why I'm bringing up all these statistics from the past, seeing as I'm claiming Reaganomics is ruining our future. Reagan and his idea of Reaganomics raised the international debt by, just in his first term, $823 billion. In his second term, he raised it by, he raised it by $950 billion. Now, you have to understand that before Reagan was in office, our debt was only $17.9 billion. That could have been paid off with what Reagan gave to his domestic programs all throughout the years and what he raised in taxes that he spent on what he wanted to instead of what the nation wanted to. This caused what was the first government budget deficiency in 20 years. and. Seeing as that budget budget deficiency happened, we are now still having budget deficiencies. We can't afford proper health care for everyone in our nation. We can't afford the proper military spending that we want today. We can't afford to pay those who deserve to be paid by um, who work for the federal companies. It's all a mess. <laughs> Amongst this garbage heap that Reaganomics has already presented us, Reagan, back in his second term, also granted amnesty for 4 million immigrants, which is bad for the economy. Not saying that immigrants themselves are bad, but we have these immigrants who are coming to America who are starting to get jobs, but they're getting paid for these jobs and not being able to pay back what they normal American would. So we're seeing this tax deficiency. We're seeing this tax unfairness where these people aren't even being able to pay taxes and we still are seeing the effects of this amnesty today because we still have 12 million immigrants 
who have been granted amnesty. And because of that, we are at just an average deficiency of $3.8 billion a year. Bringing this full circle back to the idea of deregulating domestic markets and the fact that domestic programs were cut by $39 million just in Reagan's first year of office, we're seeing that our domestic market is still suffering. We're being shown here that our domestic market and any market within those confines is completely being capped at $3.39 million, seeing as they can't make any more money for our country because they're being restricted to do so and they're being held back by what Reaganomics has put in place for them. All in all, the idea of Reagan and the economic trail that he's left for us has completely put our debt rate in shambles, has completely left our taxes vulnerable for inequality and amnesty programs that shouldn't be implemented today. We're also left with the fact that our domestic programs and our domestic markets are being capped to what could be their full potential and could be the answer to paying off our debt. The next topic that I wanted to address was capital punishment, specifically death penalty and why it should be implemented more often. The death penalty and capital punishment, all in all, supports the idea of a life for a life. It's based around the premise that if one person were to take another's into another's fate into their own hands, they should be punished accordingly, given the same thing that they did to their victim. An eye for an eye, a life for a life, a hand for a hand. Many might say that the death penalty and just capital punishment in general is cruel and unusual and goes against our Constitution. But in 2019, the Supreme Court ruled that the penalty The death penalty is constitutional for cases of rape, cases of murder, and cases of hate crimes. Some of the Supreme Court's reasoning behind this decision is, on average, each capital punishment results in 18 less murders than the national average. So each time a death penalty update is posted or presented to media, each time a case is presented in which the penalty comes to be death, and it is presented to the public, there are 18 less murders in that week than the national average suggests. So murder rates drop because because of the decision. Criminologists also have something to say about this. 88% of the U.S. criminologists report that capital punishment can prevent violent crimes. So the more capital punishment we have, the less people are inclined to commit such heinous crimes. As we all know, capital crimes do have a very big backlash just everywhere you see on the community, on the victim's life, and on the victim's family. 79% of those families of the victims reported feeling more at peace after a capital punishment was implemented in favor of the victim. So these families that have been a witness or have been accounted for this insane crime have been put through hell and back because of it, have been feeling more at peace and at mind and stable with the capital punishment being implemented. I'm going to switch gears here and focus on the convicts that have committed a capital crime and where they are in prison. Studies show that in America, people who convicted a capital crime are more likely to be 
abused in jail, beat up in jail, raped in jail than your average prisoner who committed a petty crime. Going along with this idea of convicts in prison, the death penalty maintains prison populations. Two in every five prison convicts committed a capital crime. So we're reducing the crime rate by 40% every time we, we give these convicts to the death penalty and the punishment that they're deserving of their crimes. The way our criminal justice system is run now based on punishment is sort of a gray area. You could have one person who committed, let's say, just a robbery of a store without any violence, and then you could have a person who committed what would be a capital crime. Let's say they murdered someone in this case. You could have the person who robbed the store get 25 years in prison, but you could have this murderer charge get the same sentence. And this is unethical, mainly because you have the idea of what really, truly is unusual punishment. Now, completely shifting gears and moving on to my last topic, I want to talk about vaccination laws and specifically what we are doing and what we need to do to make sure everyone is getting vaccinated and why you need to get vaccinated. And this inequality from the crime to the punishment ratio shows that our defense system and our capital punishment system isn't being used to its full extent because we obviously have two very different crimes, which in this case is robbery and murder, being charged with the same thing and being put under the same circumstances and being categorized as the same level of indignity or the same level of importance when clearly you have a crime that is higher and a crime that is lower on the scale of which one is more controversial or worse to go through. Now, completely shifting gears and moving on to my last topic, I want to talk about vaccination laws and specifically what we are doing and what we need to do to make sure everyone is getting vaccinated and why you need to get vaccinated. To get the ball rolling, more than 3 million people die a year from vaccine-preventable diseases. This means that we're seeing 3 million people have these options to get vaccinated, have these options to get a cure or a prevention for these diseases they are getting and just not taking that opportunity. Truly, there's no reason for people to not get vaccines, especially in the U.S., U.S. has the safest and most effective vaccine supply in vaccine history. We are having the -the state-of-the-art technology developing these vaccines for us, and we are having the safest and most developed technology that is giving us those vaccines. And getting a vaccine just only starts with one person. A place to a healthier world only starts with one person. A scientist from Harvard University came up with the idea of herd immunity, which is the idea of one person getting vaccinated and helping those around them stray from diseases and sicknesses and illnesses. Basically, this premise shows that one person going to get, let's say, a flu shot can sit there and doesn't run the risk anymore of getting the flu. So the people that he surrounds himself with are at a lower risk of getting the flu as well. 
It only takes one person to start an outbreak. The measles can infect six people in one second. Smallpox can, can infect three people in just a minute. The flu is running a high rate of over four million treatable cases a year. And vaccines are just a simple and effective way of stopping this. Some people are worried about vaccines and vaccinations causing diseases or causing illnesses or causing even disabilities. But there's only been 10 reported cases throughout the entire U.S. in the past four years that reported a disability given to a child through a vaccine or a mortality given to anyone for a vaccine. An estimated 9.4 million children under the age of one year did not receive basic vaccines. Vaccines, And around 60% of those children were said to create and develop in their bodies a life-threatening disease because they did not receive the vaccination. And since more and more vaccines are being used around the world, global measles mortality rate has declined by 73%. Vaccines and immunization are saving billions of people a year. We are seeing declines in what used to be deadly diseases. We are seeing the safest and most effective vaccine supply in history, and we are seeing declines in overall mortality rate because of this. Vaccine isn't something that's just necessary. It's something that's helpful for to our environment. And with that, this concludes my assignment for my speech and debate class. Sorry, my dog's barking. She's dumb.